Medical genetics. Great catchword in medicine. Almost nobody understands this, though. <laughs> so I'm here with somebody who can help us mitigate that issue, especially with regards to obstetrics and gynecology. This is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm at Women's Health Annual Visit in New York. I'm joined by Dr. Ronald J. Wapner. He's professor of OBGYN and director of reproductive genetics at Columbia University Medical Center. And he joins us today to talk about how innovations in medical genetics will and are changing clinical obstetric care. Dr. Wapner, welcome to you. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you with us. So I mentioned medical genetics. Obviously, it's penetrated every field. It's talked about often. It's uh, sort of the foundation or backbone behind a lot of new innovations now in medicine. But you mentioned medical genetics, and a lot of people's eyes immediately glaze over, and they don't really understand exactly what's going on, especially the brass tacks of how it's utilized. So in OBGYN, if you can give us a quick primer as to how deeply it's penetrated the practice and where you see it going. Well, it hasn't even scratched the surface. (laughs) Genetics has always, and the reason people's eyes gloss over, is you think of Drosophila, you think of what you took in college. Over the past five to ten years, it's really become an incredible clinical tool. And as a matter of fact, Obama has made it a major emphasis of this year, and we're trying to sequence a million of us. And by sequencing, that means look at a million people's whole genome. Well, why would we want to do that? Why would that be valuable? Well, the answer is that we like to think we're all the same, but there are really subtle differences between us. And sometimes those differences can give us a predisposition to a disease. Sometimes those differences can have a drug behave incredibly differently in different individuals. So where we're going with this is rather than be medical genetics, which has always been limited to somebody has a problem or a baby has a birth defect, we try to find out a simple genetic cause of that. What we're going to move to now that's becoming incredibly important and what the president and other people's programs have been called are programs in either personalized medicine or precision medicine. They're the same. So what does that mean? What that means is we should guide your care based on your genetic predisposition. There are individuals who have a genetic predisposition to getting high blood pressure. Well, they should know about it, and they should modify a number of different things. We know the statins, which are a medication that individuals take when their um, blood lipids are too high, and there are individuals, if they take certain ones of these statins, have significant severe complications. Mm. So where we're going with this is from treating everybody the same to treating everybody like an individual, and that's how... It's got to be implemented. Right. And you made that distinction between going from medical genetics, which sometimes gets branded with the diagnose and adios kind of scenario, to actually helping guide precision care and using the buzzword of precision medicine, which has been going around. Let's move into OBGYN, which is an area of obviously expertise for you. You're deeply involved in some of the genetic innovations and helped usher in some genetic innovations in this field as well as other fields. But tell me how... OBGYN is and will be utilizing precision care and medical genetics. Sure. I, I, I think that I'll start with obstetrics because mm. that's really what I do and much more familiar with. Over the past three years, 
there have been genetic tests that have been introduced that can do a number of different things to assure the patient that there's not a serious genetic disorder of the pregnancy that they're carrying. Mm -hmm. One of these is that by drawing blood from the mother, we can separate out the DNA from the fetus compared to the mom, and we can identify whether the fetus has a problem such as Down syndrome or a more severe problem such as an extra other chromosomes. So that's one way that we now can genetically screen the pregnancy. Now, that may seem like it's relatively limited, but you have to realize that many of the things we can identify with our new genetic tools are actually modifiable. So we now know that there are genes that we can identify in the fetus that can modify the care of that child in the nursery. We know there's a little tiny missing piece of a chromosome, and if the fetus is missing that piece, it's likely to have low levels of calcium immediately after birth. If that calcium is treated, the child does fine, but if we didn't know that, the child would have seizures and could have long-term problems. We have genes that can predict which children will be highest risk of having autism. And we now know that if you intercede early in the course or even before they're symptomatic, you can significantly modify their behavior. There are genes that will give you a significant difference in learning disabilities, and early intervention makes a gigantic difference. So even when we would think of prenatal diagnosis or prenatal testing as identifying horrible things and your two options were continue the pregnancy or make a decision not to, no longer is prenatal diagnosis just that. It really has already become a bit of precision medicine for that fetus and with modifiable changes in care that the pediatrician can then use. So that's one way. Another way is we all carry a certain number of genes that um, are okay for us because if a gene is a mistake, we have two genes because we have two chromosomes of of each kind, Mm -hmm. and then you'll be fine. But if you have a partner who has that same mistake in its DNA, then you could have a child one out of four times who gets the mistake from one parent, the mistake from the other parent, and then he really has no normal material being made. Well, we used to screen people based on their ethnicity. If you were an Ashkenazi Jew, we knew you were at risk for Tay-Sachs disease. If you were Asian, we knew that you had risks of certain kinds of thalassemia. But our population has become so intermixed now that that just doesn't work anymore, and there's lots of diseases. So now we have the ability to screen during pregnancy both parents for 110. Some, some tests can do 200 of these genetic mistakes so that we can tell couples who are at significant risk for having an affected child whether they are or are not going to have that. Then you say, well, what do we do with this information? Well, ideally, they would have the information before they even conceived. Those parents can then have what's called pre-implantation diagnosis, where they would have in vitro fertilization. And before they even put the eggs in, test the eggs and only put the eggs back in that don't have the disease. So those are all just a handful of ways that we can really modify care and have made a really big difference. That's great. You took us on a nice trajectory there of screening to diagnosis to therapeutic applications. But let me just clarify something to be, to be sure. Uh, when you mentioned cell-free DNA testing, for mm-hmm. instance, maternal cell-free, that's on the screening side, I take it. It's not diagnostic? That is absolutely okay. correct. Cell-free DNA at the present time 
tells us who is the highest risk for Down syndrome. It identifies the vast majority, but not all the cases. The technical tool that we have now is limited to identifying whether the child has Down syndrome or the child has two other extra chromosomes. That's only a small portion of the genetic disorders that people can have. So it's, it's first of all, not diagnostic. If the test comes back and says you have Down syndrome, it can certainly not be the case. So you would need to have a CVS or an amnio to confirm that. And it can miss cases not only of Down syndrome because it's a screening test, but it doesn't at all look at any of the other diseases that could occur. Right. That's interesting. And what about for microdeletions? Is it any good for that? At the no. present time, well, let me take a step back a second because yeah, not everybody may be familiar with the term microdeletions. When one looks at the chromosomes, which is what we've always done looking at the karyotype, basically the resolution of that is somewhere between 7 and 10 million base pairs. So that by looking at the chromosomes, you can only find pieces that are that size or bigger that are missing. There's now technology where we can find pieces that are kilobases, hundreds of thousands of base pairs rather than tens of millions of base pairs. But that's not done by looking at the chromosomes. There's a significant limitation to how powerful our microscopes can be. That's done by a molecular test, almost in a, in a, in a test tube and on a chip. But the first question we had to ask ourselves is, these are smaller things, are they significant? The answer is absolutely positively. There are diseases that are just as severe as Down syndrome, way more severe than many other things that are whole chromosome abnormalities that you can see from those little pieces. So really, we call them subchromosomal abnormalities. Interestingly, they occur in 1.2% of all pregnancies. One in 100 pregnancies slightly more than that, have a child that will have a microdeletion. These microdeletions, as I said, can be very, very severe, although some of them can lead to things like we just talked about, like autism, which will be modifiable. So really being able to look at that is great. Now, your question was, can we do this by non-invasive testing? The answer is not yet. Not not yet. And technically, in the lab, If you had unlimited time and money, you could do this with regularity, but it's not yet translated to the ability to do it non-invasively. So moving in on more invasive like CVS, uh, amniocentesis, that would be a way to be able to move in more directly for those kind of issues, it sounds like. Right now, it's the only way. If if a woman or a couple, really, wants the most genetic information that they can get about the pregnancy— they really need to have a diagnostic test such as amnio and CVS. Now, everybody throws their, oh, my God, you want to stick that dangerous needle in me? <laughs> no, that's just not true. We've been doing that for a long time. We know that the risk of a, losing a pregnancy because you have that test is 1 in 500 to 1 in 1,000 women who have either of those tests would lose the pregnancy. So now couples face an important decision. They're balancing. Do they want important information to avoid having a child that could have a severe handicap or problem. And the risk you pay for that is a one in a thousand risk of losing the pregnancy. There are lots and lots of people that that equation would say, I want the information to avoid having a child that would have those problems. Also, just quantify it for a second. The chance of losing a pregnancy may be one in a thousand. The the chance of having a child that has a significant microdeletion or a chromosome abnormality is one in 
One in a hundred. Mm. So it's a tenfold greater chance that there's a problem than you would have any problem from the procedure. Fascinating. Well, Dr. Robin, we only have a minute or two left, but just to kind of help close this out, obviously gene therapy is becoming increasingly busy term. Mm -hmm. Other ramifications are out there as far as uh, what the horizon holds for utilization of medical genetics in um, obstetric care and other areas. Anything that you want to close with as far as where you see the field heading in this field? Well, I, I think we spent a good deal of time talking about diagnosing things that are preventive. We're just going to continue down that path. Like BRCA1, identifying women that have a high risk for breast cancer who are now making decisions to have mastectomies and to have their ovaries removed because the same gene can cause ovarian cancer. That's just the beginning of how we're going to be able to do this. Once we are able to identify people for lots of different kinds of cancers, we're able to do much better surveillance and modify. So the one way it's going to absolutely go is modify, as I talked about, our individualized care. But gene therapy isn't that far away. There now are molecular approaches where you can actually cut out a piece of DNA that's abnormal and replace it with a piece that is normal. Well, you can't do that in an adult because you've got so many cells, but it's not impossible that you could do that in a very, very early embryo who only has a few cells, and then that would spread the cells as the embryo grows through, throughout, the, throughout the person. So there, gene therapy is not that far away. We have to be cautious. There's been misadventures but I think that's really where we're, where we're going to go. And our knowledge base is significantly in, increasing. One last comment, and it's kind of a play. In order to learn all of this, we really are going to need to get DNA samples from lots of people. And we're going to need participation of individuals in lots and lots of genetic research studies. just think it's important that people realize that these studies are really done under incredibly tight controls. There's little to no risk of being part of these studies. Everybody's afraid you'll have my DNA, it's going to be a problem. No, that's not the case. So I, I just implore people that are listening to this, to if they're asked to be part of studies like this, it, it really will help the care of you, maybe, but certainly your children and your grandchildren. It's a great closing thought. And you've opened up a couple doors that merit at least a thousand more questions, but we'll save those for another time. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Ronald J. Wapner from Columbia University Medical Center for joining us, talking about the future of obstetrics, gynecology, and overall utilization of medical genetics and care. Dr. Wapner, thanks again for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> for more information about this and other interviews, come over to ReachMD.com, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks again.